We interrupt your broadcast to bring you an episode from the Stephen or Else Network of Truly Epic Podcast. Find more shows at StephenOrElse.com. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. folks welcome back to hither came conan the podcast where i am reading all of the original robert e howard conan stories and then seeking out and reading the various comic book adaptations and then i talk about them here on the show i'm your host my name is steven and this is episode number three which guess what we're going to talk about conan but before we do i have a couple of items first up I need to correct an error I made in the previous episode in which at one point I said that the Phoenix on the sword was the final Conan adventure in regard to Conan's fictional timeline. It was the first story published. And then I said it was probably the last Conan story in the Conan timeline here. I'll tell you what, let me just play the tape for you. I'm not 100% sure, but from what I understand, the Phoenix on the Sword, as far as the stories that Robert E. Howard wrote, the Phoenix on the Sword is the final Conan story as far as if you're looking at Conan's life uh, in a linear fashion. So yeah, I was wrong. And uh, I'm never afraid to admit when I'm wrong. I mean, I am wrong a lot. So the idea of trying to fight against that and always being like, hey, well, no, I wasn't wrong. Let me tell you why. And trying to come up with creative reasons why I wasn't wrong. It just it just sounds really exhausting. So I'm always going to admit it. Now, I will point out, however, as you heard from the tape, I did say that I might be wrong when I made the statement. So, yeah, I always have that. To fall back on. Now, our second item here is a bit more exciting because it happens to be my first bit of listeners' feedback. So, after I released episode number one and after I had recorded episode two, but had not released it yet. I got an email from a Greg Hersom and he says, hello, sword brother. I caught your podcast on audible. I'm always on the lookout for all things, sci-fi fantasy, sword and sorcery, etc." I enjoyed it. You'll probably get all kinds of emails like this, but as a Robert E. Howard aficionado for over 40 years, I feel like somewhat of an authority. Just so you know, Marvel lost the license to Howard Properties again a couple of years ago, and now Titan Books, or the publishing house that owns Titan does. 
In fact, they just released a new Conan pastiche novel last December, Conan Blood of the Serpent, by S.M. Sterling. By the way, huge fan of the Conan in the Avengers run, Savage Avengers, which is basically like blasphemy to most Conan fans, but I don't care. I loved it. My opinion, for what it's worth, and granted I'm biased, is the rape thing in Frost Giant's Daughter is as rapey as the Odyssey when Odysseus and crew are under the spell of the sirens. This wasn't a mortal woman. She was somewhat of a deity that basically gets off on the violence of men. She uses her irresistible sexuality to bait Conan to his death, much like you can't fault a mouse for taking the cheese from the trap he escapes. If there had been no bait, he wouldn't have been lured to the trap. When he escapes the trap, can he be expected to turn down the bait? There was something else I wanted to point out, but it escapes me now. Anyways, I would love to knock back and forth anything about Conan or Howard with you. So hit me up anytime. Fortune and glory, Greg Hersom. Thank you so much for that email, Greg. Uh, I have some comments. Uh, first off, I picked up the audiobook of Conan, Blood of the Serpent by S.M. Sterling. I haven't listened to it yet. It's in my digital stack of other audiobooks that, uh, you know, I had some credits over on the Audible, so I picked it up and I'm looking forward to listening to it. Uh, I haven't read a lot of the Savage Avengers comics that have Conan in them, but I did start. I read a couple of trades, maybe three, and I really, I enjoyed them myself. Um, I had actually started out with the latest volume, David Prepose. I, I can't remember his name, but I had started out there and then I kind of realized, wait a minute, I have no idea how Conan got to the Marvel 616 universe. And so I jumped all the way back to the beginning uh, when he came through. And it, it actually wasn't during Savage Avengers. It was a, is it blah, 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 flippity flop. He can't speak. It was during in uh, uh, an Avengers limited series, the, the title of which escapes me. But I, I, I've been enjoying what little Conan I've been reading so far of him in the modern universe. Uh, in regard to your opinion on Frost Giant's daughter, yeah, that makes sense. I get it. He didn't have a lot of control over what he was going to do. I mean, on the one hand, you can look at it kind of like, uh, you know, I think about Roseanne Barr and how she had what was on social media, had either posted a lot of pictures that were very racist or had made a lot of racist comments and then turned around and blamed it on the Ambien that she took. And of course, Ambien doesn't make you racist. It just lets down the inhibitions that you may have that would stop you from spouting your racist comments to the world. And so one could look at Frost Giant's daughter as Conan. It's in his nature to be rapey, but he holds it back. He's not he's he he, he keeps it buried deep within himself. but then. The, the magic made him lose his inhibitions. Uh, or you could look at it as he never would have done it in the first place had he not been ensorcerled. Is, is that the right word? I don't know. But yeah, no, I completely understand your, your point of view. Um, it's very valid. But again, Greg, thank you for the email. I loved when you said you'll probably get all kinds of emails like this. 
I'm just going to assume that you mean from you because I haven't gotten any other emails. Yours is the only one so far. But to the rest of you who are listening, if you want to be like Greg, you can email the show at Stephen or else at gmail.com. I don't have a dedicated email address yet for Hither Came Conan. I just I want to let the uh, let the podcast get some legs underneath it first. And uh, if, if, if it's deserving of its own email address, then that's what we're going to do. Anyway, today we're looking at The Scarlet Citadel by Robert E. Howard. This story was written in the summer of 1932 and first published in Weird Tales magazine in January of 1933. And it consists of five chapters. This was the second Conan story published, but it was actually written after The Tower of the Elephant which is the third Conan story that was published. And it's the main subject of episode number four, which will be coming out in a few weeks. So let's just go through the synopsis for Wikipedia. And then um, I will make my comments and talk about the adaptations. An older, wiser King Conan of Aquilonia receives a call for help from Amaurus, the ruler of neighboring Ophir. Amaurus claims that Strabonus, the emperor of Koth, is threatening his kingdom. Conan marches into Ophir with an army of 5,000 Aquilonian knights. But it's a trap! It's a trap! Amalrus and Strabonus are working together with a wizard named Sothalanti to kill Conan and claim the throne of Aquilonia. The Aquilonian knights are cut to pieces while Conan is imprisoned within a Korshamish dungeon. This dungeon is used by Sothalanti for nefarious experiments and Conan discovers bizarre horrors during his escape. Conan frees Peleus, a rival wizard of Sothalanti, who has been held captive and comatose in the catacombs underneath the Scarlet Citadel for the past ten years. Peleus, grateful to Conan for freeing him, helps the barbarian escape the dungeon and regain his position as king of Aquilonia. The story climaxes with a gigantic battle, where Sothalante meets a grisly fate at the hands of Peleus and Conan. So the opening of this story, for me, reinforces just how badass Conan is. Because he is, as the story opens, the, the battle between Conan and his 5,000 strong force and King Amalrus and Emperor Strabonus and their like 30,000 strong force that that battle is winding down and Conan is actually the last man standing on his side and he's standing alone among the corpses of his army and as the synopsis said it, it was all a trap according to the story it says that um Amaris of Ophir had quote sent an emissary imploring aid against Strabonus, who, he said, was ravaging his western domain, which lay like a tapering wedge between the border of Aquilonia and the vast southern kingdom of Koth. He asked only for a thousand horsemen in the presence of Conan to hearten his demoralized subjects, end quote. So as the story opens, the battle is dying down, and Amaurus, Strabonus, and the dark wizard Sothalanti ride forth to confront Conan, who, as I said, is the only one left standing. And here's what the story has to say about Conan in this moment. 
Conan's dark, scarred face was darker yet with passion. His black armor was hacked to tatters and splashed with blood. His great sword red to the crosspiece. In this stress, all the veneer of civilization had faded. It was a barbarian who faced his conquerors. Conan was a Sumerian by birth, one of those fierce, moody hillmen who dwelt in their gloomy, cloudy land in the north. His saga, which had led him to the throne of Aquilonia, was the basis of a whole cycle of hero tales. So Amaurus and Strabonus with an army at their backs and Conan, the only one on the opposing side who's still left alive, the, the, the two kings still have enough sense to approach Conan with a healthy amount of caution and respect for Conan's skills in cooking fools, which is why at this point, Strabonus orders his archers to take Conan out. But Sothalante, the dark wizard, who is actually the true leader uh, of this conquering force, he stops Strabonus, telling him that he wants Conan alive. And Strabonus, his reply is, uh, again, this just shows how badass Conan is. So Strabonus says, easy to say, snarled Strabonus, uneasy, lest in some way the blackmailed giant might hew a path to them through the spears. Who can take a man-eating tiger alive? By Ishtar, his heel is on the necks of my finest swordsmen. It took seven years and stacks of gold to train each, and there they lie. So much kites meat. Arrows, I say. And I have to admit that when I got to this point in the story, I was like, kites meat? What the flippin' flip is kites meat? So I took that quote and I threw it out there online in the social medias. And I got a couple of responses back over at Spoutable. You can find me over there by looking for at Stephen or else. I put it out on Twitter. I put it out on Facebook. And within five minutes, I had my answer on Spoutable and I never heard anything on Twitter and Facebook and eventually just deleted those posts. But like I said, I got a couple replies. Uh, the first one is from Chris Flory. I, I might put their handles in the show notes if anybody wants to go check these folks out. But they said uh, a kite is a bird of prey. I would guess the author meant they were easy targets or not long for this world. And then uh, Barbara Edelman at Barbara Edelman said, a kite is a large scavenger bird, much like a vulture. Depending on where you live, you can sometimes see them, vultures, not kites, hanging out around roadkill. I just Googled and they also eat living animals. So after reading both of those explanations and then going back and reading that quote again, basically what Strabonus means is, uh, there they lie, so much kites meat, is uh, his best swordsmen are all dead. Conan killed them all, and basically all that's left of them are for the scavengers to come and eat. Anyway, so uh, Sothalanti um, dissuades Strabonus from using his archers to take out Conan, and he goes and takes out Conan all by himself. He just kind of walks over to Conan, who's standing there with blood dripping off his sword, and Conan lunges at him, ready to, to cut Sothalanti down. And the wizard just kind of steps aside, gently places his hand on Conan's arm, and Conan falls to the ground, paralyzed. Um, speaking of Sothalante, I wanted to read this bit from the story when he first appears in the story, This just so you understand who we're dealing with. 
Of this Cothian wizard, dark tales were told. Tousle-headed women in northern and western villages frightened children with his name, and rebellious slaves were brought to a based submission quicker than by the lash with the threat of being sold to him. Men said that he had a whole library of dark works bound in skin flayed from living human victims. And in the nameless pits below the hill whereupon his palace sat, he trafficked with the powers of darkness, trading screaming girl slaves for unholy secrets. He was the real ruler of Koth. I'm, I really enjoy Robert E. Howard's writing. I, the, you know, now that I'm three stories in, I'm, you know, I, I didn't care too much for Frost Giant's daughter. Uh, it was Phoenix on the Sword that really kind of turned me on to the way Robert E. Howard writes and his descriptions and just the way he presents things, be it Conan or the, this dark wizard. It's, I, I'm really enjoying it. Anyway, so Conan's paralyzed and they slap some chains on him and they throw him in the back of a chariot because they're going to take him back to Korshemish, which is the capital city of Koth, where Strabonus rules, even though he's basically just a puppet for Sothalanti. And it's also there in Korshemesh where we find the titular Scarlet Citadel. And I'll read you another bit from the story that talks about the Citadel. Before midnight, they crossed the Ophirian border, and at dawn, the spires of Korshemesh stood up gleaming and rose-tinted on the southeastern horizon, its slim towers overawed by the grim Scarlet Citadel that at a distance was like a splash of bright blood in the sky. That was the castle of Sotha. Only one narrow street, paved with marble and guarded by heavy iron gates, led up to it, where it crowded the hill dominating the city. The sides of that hill were too sheer to be climbed elsewhere. From the walls of the citadel, one could look down on the broad white streets of the city, on minuetted mosques, shops, temples, mansions, and markets. One could look down, too, on the palaces of the king, set in broad gardens, high-walled, luxurious riots of fruit trees and blossoms, through which artificial streams murmured and silvery fountains rippled incessantly. Over all brooded the citadel, like a condor stooping above its prey, intent in its own dark meditations. So, yeah, the, the Scarlet Citadel doesn't sound like a, like a nice place. So from there, as they're entering the city of Korshemesh, we, we end chapter one and we get into chapter two, which my favorite moment of this entire story happens in chapter two, because as the chapter is, is opening, Conan is brought out to stand before Strabonus and Amalris and Sothalante. And while his captors lounge about in comfort, you know, dressed in silks with their gold and their jewels and such, Conan is described in this story as, quote, grim, bloodstained, naked but for a loincloth shackles on his mighty limbs, his blue eyes blazing beneath the tangled black mane which fell over his low, broad forehead. He dominated the scene, turning to tinsel the pomp of the conquerors by the sheer vitality of his elemental personality. And the kings, in their pride and splendor, were aware of it each in his secret heart and were not at ease. That, that's pretty freaking awesome. I mean, he's 
Conan is a prisoner and he's dirty and bloody and scarred and wounded and he's wearing nothing but, you know, just a bit of fabric that covers up his naughty bits. And yet he is, he's the one person in the room that draws everybody's attention, um, not because of, oh, look at this poor wretch. Uh, he just, he just commands attention. He's just, uh, there's just something about this guy that people are just drawn to and, and uh, marvel at. Uh, but it's here where Amaurus explains to Conan that they want Aquilonia so that they can extend their empire. And they are prepared to offer Conan suitable compensation. I mean, they've killed 5,000 of his knights. They have captured him and they've locked him up. There's really no reason why they couldn't go take Aquilonia. But if they are able, I guess, to get something from him that says officially that he's handing the city over to them, then they could do it without having to lay siege to the city or anything like that. But when Amalrus says this to Conan and he offers suitable compensation, Conan's reply is just simply my favorite part in this book. So I'm going to read that to you as well. Compensation. It was a gust of deep laughter from Conan's mighty chest. The price of infamy and treachery. I am a barbarian, so I shall sell my kingdom and its people for your life and your filthy gold. Ha! How did you come to your crown? You and that black-faced pig beside you. Your fathers did the fighting and the suffering and handed their crowns to you on golden platters. What you inherited without lifting a finger, except to poison a few brothers, I fought for. You sit on satin and guzzle wine the people sweat for and talk of divine rights of sovereignty. Bah! I climbed out of the abyss of naked barbarism to the throne, and in that climb I spilt my blood as freely as I spilt that of others. If either of us has the right to rule men by crom, it is I. How have you proved yourselves my superiors? I found Aquilonia in the grip of a pig like you, one who traced his genealogy for a thousand years. The land was torn with the wars of the barons, and the people cried out under oppression and taxation. Today, no Aquilonian noble dares maltreat the humblest of my subjects, and the taxes of the people are lighter than anywhere else in the world. What of you? Your brother, Amaurus, holds the eastern half of your kingdom and defies you. And you, Strabonus, your soldiers are even now besieging castles of a dozen or more rebellious barons. The people of both your kingdoms are crushed into the earth by tyrannous taxes and levies, and you would loot mine? Ha! Free my hands and I'll varnish this floor with your brains. You're a fool, exclaimed Amaurus. You are in our hands, and we can take both crown and life at our pleasure. Conan's answer was neither kingly nor dignified, but characteristically instinctive to the man, whose barbaric nature had never been submerged in his adopted culture. He spat full, in Amaurus's eyes. That is some writing right there. I just, I love, you know, I'm like, I'm like falling in love with Conan just from this story. The fact that, again, he's in chains, he's beaten. I mean, he, he lost. And yet he stands there in front of his conquerors and he tells them, his arms and legs shackled, that he's the better man. They all suck. He of any of them deserve the right to rule anybody 
it's just it's it's a really good scene. And when he spits in Amaris's eyes, that's that's that was great as well. And Amaris, of course, goes after Conan as soon as he spits in his eyes, like you bastard or something like that. And he goes after him. But Sothalanti stops him saying, you know, no, this is my captive. And Amaris is basically just he's he's full of rage and he, he tries to shove the wizard aside and the wizard stops him by throwing a handful of dust into the king's face, which blinds him temporarily. And I wanted to talk about that real quick because twice now so far in the story, we've seen Sothalante just do uh, a, like the the most minimal of gestures and on the one hand, take out Conan and then on the other hand, uh, temporarily blind Amaris. And the thing I don't get about him, however, is that in both of these instances, he explains to everybody how he did it. So, for example, when he kind of tapped Conan on the arm and Conan dropped to the ground, it says in the story, Sotha displayed a broad ring of curious design on his finger. He pressed his fingers together, and on the inner side of the ring, a tiny steel fang darted out like a snake's tongue. It is steeped in the juice of the purple lotus, which grows in the ghost-haunted swamps of southern Stygia, said the magician. Its touch produces temporary paralysis. And then when he blinds Amaurus, he says, Merely a gesture to convince you who was the real master, snapped Sotha. The mask of his formal pretense dropped, revealing the naked, evil personality of the man. Strabonus has learned his lesson. Let you learn yours. It was but a dust I found in a Stygian tomb, which I flung into your eyes. If I brush out their sight again, I will leave you to grope in darkness for the rest of your life. So I don't know if it's uh, ego that causes him to want to explain to people how he took Conan out and how he blinded Amaris temporarily. I mean, you would think a wizard who is not using magic and who has a reputation, he, he can use magic. They, that comes up a few times in the other areas of the story. But in these two cases, he's not using magic. But for folks who don't know any better, people who are standing around watching this happen, they're like, oh my gosh, look at the magic that he's done. All he did was touch Conan on the arm and Conan dropped. And to me, if you don't explain to them how you did that, that makes you more mysterious and people are going to fear you more because they have no idea the kind of power that you wield. And yet he, <laughs> ah, no, I got this ring. See, I, I got it. I got this neat little ring. I bought it in a, in a shop and it's got this little needle in it. And I, I put some, some, some liquid in it that poisons and, and paralyzes people. And eh, it's no big deal. Anybody could do it. Basically, you know, oh, I got this uh, powder. I threw it in his eyes. You could have done that to me. You know, it just, I don't understand that about this character. Why would he do that? And I, again, I think it's ego. I think he's basically just telling everybody, well, this is how I did it and I could do it again. And regardless of the fact that I'm doing something that anybody else could do, uh, I'm still more powerful than all of you and you all fear me. So <laughs> I just, I, I, I don't know. I think that speaks volumes about who this character is. The fact that he doesn't, Again, I think it's ego that that he 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 doesn't possess the ability to not explain himself, I guess. You know, he can't just hang back and go, yeah, that's right. 
Look at how mysterious and powerful I am. Fear me. I, it just, it's very strange. Anyway, they lock Conan up in the dungeon. Uh, it's like a series of catacombs under the Scarlet Citadel, where Sotholanti hangs his hat or his robes or whatever. And it's in these catacombs where he conducts evil experiments on people and whatnot. And uh, we're introduced to a guy named Shakili. He is the jailer. And there's a big iron barred gate that leads into these dungeons. And you can only open it from the outside. And uh, even from the inside, reaching through the bars, you can't, you know, the, the, the mechanism is nowhere near the bars. So even if someone was in the dungeon and they weren't chained up, they, they can't get out unless somebody on the other side opens up that gate. Well, they, they drag Conan in and they basically put him in the, the main first open room here of these catacombs and they chain him to a wall and they leave to go uh, to Aquilonia to conquer it. And Conan, his, his chains are, are, were fastened to a ring, which is buried in the stone wall and, and all his strength. He can't, he can't break the chains or anything. And then I don't remember, I don't know if they really talk about how long he's there before he is greeted by the first horror of the catacombs. And it is a freaking giant snake that is uh, scales. The, the, the snake scales are white, which Conan surmises means that the snake has never seen the light of day. And the snake's freaking huge. Its head is as big as Conan. And the snake is kind of looking at him and Conan's kind of standing still. And he, he's realizing at this point, all right, well, I'm dead. Uh, I'm going to do what I can to inflict some damage on this freaking snake, but he, it's going to kill me. There's, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to meet my maker. But then the snake kind of hears or senses or smells something and then goes running off. And then this great big old dude comes in as a, as a black man. He's a slave and he's completely naked and he's carrying a sword in one hand and the keys to the, the shackles on Conan's wrists and, and I guess his legs and whatnot. He's, he's carrying those keys in the other hand. And we find out that he has come to kill Conan uh, because Conan before he was a king, we learn in this story that at some point in his past, he was um, a pirate of some sort. And during his life as a pirate, apparently he killed this slave's brother and would have killed this other guy too, but this guy managed to escape. They, they lived in this area where they were basically the lords of all they surveyed. And then Conan and his pirates came and sacked the town and Conan killed his brother, and then this guy escaped and was then captured and sold into slavery. And so he's here to, to pay Conan back. Uh, but before he can do anything, suddenly the snake is back, strikes from, from the shadows, and quickly kills this dude. And as this happens, the guy drops both the keys and the sword. Conan is able to get both of them uh, and unlock his manacles. He runs over to the gate. Uh, old Shakuli's out there and he won't open the gate, of course, for Conan. And, 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 and Shakili is kind of an idiot. He's standing there at the bars going, ha ha, I don't care that you ain't got your manacles on. You can't get out. You're still trapped. And as he's gloating, uh, Conan just stabs him through the bars and kills him. And then uh, Conan has to, you know, he can't get out through the, through the front gate. So he delves deeper into the catacombs to see if he can find 
another way out and he encounters a lot of different strange horrific creatures and at one point he comes across this guy Peleus who is entombed in a plant of some sort this big evil looking plant that's got it all got this guy all wrapped up in its vines and and uh there's a part of it it's it's kind of almost it makes me think of a uh, little shop of horrors uh except for just eating him these bits of the plant come out and from the way they describe it it's like it's 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 sucking the life force out of this guy and he's 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 basically in a coma and so conan cuts the plant down killing the plant and freeing this dude who we learn is uh, a, a wizard named peleus and he's been a captive down here of uh sothalanti for 10 years and he had no idea how long he'd, he he'd been down there because the entire time He's been in this kind of coma state. And now that he's no longer being, you know, ravished by this plant, the, the, the longer he is away from this plant, the more he, he, he starts to regain his strength. And Conan has heard of his name. He knows him as a famous wizard who disappeared or, or as he thought, died 10 years ago. And um, Peleus helps Conan get out of the dungeon and they do that by going back to the main gate and Peleus uses his magic to animate the corpse of Shaquille to uh, go over and flip the switch and open the gate and you get this sense because at one point as they're heading to the gate the snake comes back out and it's it's getting ready to to take a big old bite out of Conan and then it sees Peleus behind Conan and basically runs away like a frightened dog. Yipe, 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 yipe. And Conan is scratching his head and he says, I don't understand. Why did it run away? And Peleus tells Conan that basically uh, uh, serpents can look at people and see their true nature, see through their masks and their disguises and see their true nature. And apparently when it looked at Peleus, it saw a powerful, possibly evil dude. We we get the feeling that Peleus isn't a good guy. but. Conan let him out. Uh, they both hate Sothalanti, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, they go up into the, the the castle, the Scarlet Citadel, and they're they're hanging out in uh, like Sothalanti's freaking bedroom or something, and they're drinking wine. And there's a crystal ball there that, through Peleus, Conan is able to see kind of what's going on over in Aquilonia at this point. And he can see that it's under siege um, and that the, the other, the army that left from Korshamish are, are on the way. And soon his city will be conquered. And he's pretty upset about that. He, he even says out loud that if he could get to Aquilonia right away, he could help put a stop to this. And so Pelias says, well, come with me. And they go up into this, you know, out on this balcony and he, does some magic and he summons some kind of winged creature. And the way the story describes it, Peleus says there are creatures not alone of earth and sea, but of air and the far reaches of the skies as well, dwelling apart, unguessed of men. Yet to him who holds the master words and signs and the knowledge underlying all, they are not malignant nor inaccessible. Uh, so he, he, he summons this, this winged creature. It's described as a huge bat-like creature and a, uh, 40 foot spread of its giant wings. And he, uh, Conan saw that it was neither bird nor bat. 
I'm trying to find more here because I feel like there was something else that they said about this thing. So when we go back to, so he, he climbs up on this creature's back and they fly off. And when they arrive at Aquilonia, they further describe the creature. It says, um, the sun was rising over the eastern towers. Out of the crimson dawn came a flying speck that grew to a bat, then to an eagle. Then all who saw screamed in amazement, for over the walls of Tamar swooped a shape such as men knew only in half-forgotten legends, and from between its titan wings sprang a human form as it roared over the great tower. So just based on what little description we get of this thing, I pictured it as a dragon or maybe like a, a wyvern. I think that's what they're called from D&D, which is basically a smaller dragon uh, that just has back legs, um, doesn't have front legs, uh, has the, the wings instead. That's the way I pictured it. Now, I'm not going to really get into the other adaptations just yet, but I can tell you that in, in one of the adaptations, this winged creature uh, basically is like a pterodactyl. And then in another adaptation, it's just some weird looking freaking Cthulhu-like thing. It's like a like a bat with a Cthulhu head on it with all these tentacles and stuff coming off its head. So when I saw the, the, the pterodactyl or pterodon or, you know, that type of creature, that made perfect sense to me. It's like, oh, okay. Because the, the, the whole thing here where it says uh, sh a shape such as men knew only in half forgotten legends makes me feel like this is something that used to be around and people uh, kind of remember hearing about these creatures. And so for me, while I was thinking dragon, a uh, 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 petrodon or whatever the flip they're called, that made a lot of sense. But then the other version that had this weird freaking Cthulhu headed creature on a, on a bat's body, that obviously was just the, the artist um, taking artistic license with the thing. But it allows Conan to get back to the capital before at the head, you know, before the army arrives and he's able to gather up all his forces. There's a, there's a guy who is, uh, of Royal blood, maybe who is, basically he's the guy that, um, Sothalanti and, and Strabonis and, and, and Amalris set up as the new King of Aquilonia, who I think it's Arpello. And there's already like a lot of fighting going on in the city because the, the rumors are that Conan is dead and this Arpello guy is the new King. And, and uh, many of the, the soldiers who were loyal to Conan leave and others, you know, start there's there's like a civil war fighting within the city. And then Conan shows up and Arpello, who is a prince, he he lands, he, he jumps off of the creature and lands like on this balcony next to this next to this guy and just picks him up and heaves him off the battlements and kills him. And uh, everybody's all happy to see Conan because obviously he's a he's a good king and he treats his people well. And so he's able to uh, get everybody together and get an army massed. And they they head out the front gates to meet Amaris and Strabonis and uh, Sothalante and their army. And there's this the entire chapter five is mostly the battle. Um, and of course, Conan and his forces win. Uh, once Sothalante sees that his side is losing, he, he's, he runs away. Conan sees this and he gives chase. They're, they're both on horses. Um, but apparently, uh, Sothalante's horse is, it's not going to tire out. And eventually 
he's going to outdistance Conan and Conan won't catch him. Then suddenly this eagle, this giant eagle swoops down out of the sky and takes out Sotha's freaking horse. And that allows Conan to catch up with him and Conan chops his head off with his sword, but that doesn't kill him. And so you've got this wizard whose head is on the ground and his body is still standing. And it's like walking around like a blind man trying to find its head. That he could put the head back on his shoulders and he would probably then heal and uh, become whole again. And Conan's like, all right, that's fine. I'll just chop you back up again. But then suddenly the eagle is back and it picks up Sotha's head and flies off with it. And Sotha's headless body goes running off after it into the distance. And the eagle is laughing with a human voice. So we have to assume that that's Peleus with his uh, last bit of revenge on uh, Sothalante. And then that's, that's pretty much where the story ends. Um, I really enjoyed it. This was a good one. Um, I enjoyed the first half. I'll say I, I enjoyed the, the beginning and the end. I didn't so much like all the stuff in the dungeon. That, that kind of stuff, I, I don't know. I'm not into like dungeon crawls and, and weird um, horrors, as they would call them. Just these unformed creatures that that you just you are in the dark that you I, I don't know I just I don't like a lot of that too much so um while I really enjoyed the beginning and I really enjoyed the end all that stuff in the middle I didn't really care for all that much but let's talk about the adaptations real quick it's been at it, it's been adapted twice the first time was by Marvel Comics in the Savage Sword of Conan issue number 30 from April of 1978 it had a cover price of a dollar and it was written by Roy Thomas with art by Frank Bruner. Now, Savage Sword of Conan was a magazine. It wasn't a comic book. And it was black and white. And they produced these magazines because they could, well, they didn't have to adhere to the Comics Code Authority. Because while it was all comics inside, because it was a magazine format, it was the size of a magazine, then it was a magazine and not a comic book. And so they didn't have to follow any kind of rules. And so they were able to get a little bit more bloody and brutal in there. Um, now I read this through a collection, a digital collection, uh, called Savage Sword of Conan, the original Marvel years, volume three. And that collects Savage Sword of Conan issues 29 through 44 and something called the Marvel comics, super special number nine. It was published by Marvel comics in July of 2021. And you can't find the digital version of it in anywhere anymore because Marvel no longer holds the license. So if you can find the, the paperback or the hardback, you know, you're probably going to spend some money. So whoever's going to be producing the comics, and I think Greg said it was Titan or the publishing company that Titan owns. I know that Jim Zub, who wrote some of the Conan for Marvel, uh, he'll be writing Conan for this, for these new comics. So I'll, I'll be on the lookout for those. Uh, the second adaptation was from Dark Horse. It was a four-issue mini called King Conan, the Scarlet Citadel. It ran from February to May of 2012. had a cover price of $3.50 per issue. It was written by Timothy Truman. The artist was Tomas Giarello. The colorist was Jose Villarubia. And then cover art was done by Derek Robinson. This is the same team that did the Dark Horse version of Phoenix on the Sword, except for the cover artist. Um, and I'm reading it from the very same collection. 
King Conan Chronicles Epic Collection, Phantoms and Phoenixes. This collects Conan and the Midnight God from 2007, issues one through five. King Conan the Scarlet Citadel from 2011, issues one through four. King Conan the Phoenix on the Sword from 2012, issues one through four. Conan the Phantoms of the Black Coast, issues one through five from 2012, and has material from Age of Conan, Iborian Adventures. And uh, this was originally published by Dark Horse, but it's in a, a collection that Marvel Comics put out while it held the license back in September of 2022. Now, I did find it odd that, you know, one of the things that most of these companies do when they get this Conan license and they start making comics is when they start, if they're not telling original stories and they're adapting the Robert E. Howard stories, they tend to do it chronologically. So the first one they always do is the Frost Giant's Daughter. And I found it weird that this story, the Scarlet Citadel, as far as Conan's fictional timeline, this takes place after the Phoenix on the Sword. But Dark Horse made this, published this comic, these four issues in 2011, and published Phoenix on the Sword, those four issues in 2012. I don't know why they did it that way. And in fact, it's almost as if if you read The Scarlet Citadel, those four comics, they make reference to Ronaldo, who was the, the poet guy who was part of the, the, the rebellion that tried to assassinate Conan in The Phoenix on the Sword. While they do make reference to him in the original Robert E. Howard story, it's kind of a weird reference in The Scarlet Citadel comic version because... You don't know if, if, if you're only reading those, you don't know who Ronaldo is at that point. You won't know for another year. But of the two, Marvel and Dark Horse, uh, once again, the Dark Horse version was my favorite because it was more, you know, they had more room to make it more true to the original story. Uh, the Marvel Comics adaptation, though, because it was in Savage Sword of Conan, was really quite good. The only thing that took the Dark Horse version above was because they were able to do more with it. And it, in many places, looked better. But this black and white story uh, with art by Frank Bruner is gorgeous. There's a really great two-page spread in there from the very beginning of the battle of Conan standing amongst all the corpses. And it's really good. It's, it's a good-looking story. And uh, if you can get your hands on it, read it. Uh, but the Dark Horse version won out in the end. However, there was one part in the Dark Horse version that was just a bit different than the Marvel version and the original version, which was there's a moment down in the dungeon after Conan frees Peleus in which Peleus is talking about Sothalanti. And in the Marvel version and the original version, I'm going I'm to read you the quote from the Robert E. Howard story, but they basically use the same quote, uh, or at least close enough that it, it means the same thing. But he says, as for Sotha, men say that a dancing girl of Shadazar slept too near the pre-human ruins on Dagoth Hill and woke up in the grip of a black demon. From that unholy union was spawned an accursed hybrid men call Sothalanti. So in both of those versions, the original and the Marvel version, he's basically, Peleus is basically saying, I don't think that Sothalanti is human. I am human. I don't think he is. 
men say that this is, you know, this is the rumor. But in the Dark Horse version, he says it as if it's fact. He says, well, at least I'm human. Sotalanti's not. His mom slept with a freaking demon. And, you know, he says it as if he knows that this is a, a fact. I just, I don't know why they made, it's a small change. And I'm not, I don't know why they strayed from the original on that, on that one bit. But like Phoenix on the Sword, the Dark Horse version had this framing device where you've got a, a, a King Conan who is much older than the Conan we have in these stories. And he's telling the story to this scribe whose name now I can't remember, uh, just so they can make a record of, of Conan's adventures. But that was the that was the Scarlet Citadel. Now, you know, now that I've read three of Conan's adventures so far. I know I've read others in the past. I just don't remember them off the top of my head. But as we go through these, I'm going to start ranking them. So, you know, with one being the best. And then in this case, since we're, we're just talking about three, three being the worst. So if I'm ranking them that way, then Frost Giant's Daughter is number three. Scarlet Citadel is going to be number two. And then Phoenix on the Sword is, is my number one story so far. And honestly, Everything about the opening and the ending of Scarlet Citadel was so much better than a lot of the stuff in Phoenix on the Sword. It's just that I didn't like the middle stuff, like I said earlier. So that's what put it at number two. <laughs> number two. Wow. There goes that little fourth grade boy inside me. Number two. <laughs> I apologize. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. We, uh, you know, I... I I try really hard to to look at these stories as I'm reading them as if, you know, this story was the second Conan story ever, ever published. So I'm trying to think of it in that frame of mind. You know, I, I don't, I'm not a Conan expert, but I do know a lot about Conan just from the movies and some of the other books that I've read and, and the comics that I read in the eighties and the, the dark horse comics I read when, when they first started publishing Conan. So this is not a, a character who is a stranger to me, but as I'm reading these, I'm trying to put myself in that frame of mind where, where you know, going into the story, I knew that there was a, a period of time in Conan's history where he was a pirate. I also know that there's a period of time in Conan's history where he was a thief. But if you've only read Phoenix on the Sword and then the Scarlet Citadel, the only thing you really know about Conan before he becomes this king is that he is a Sumerian, that he was uh, a part of a, I, I think they were mercenaries that were fighting to free the people of Aquilonia from this tyrant king. And then in the Scarlet Citadel, we learn that he spent some time in his youth as a pirate. So that was kind of neat. It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of it in that Again, that frame of mind. All right, so this is what we know about Conan based on the first story. And now we're getting a little bit more information from his back, you know, from his background, from his past, that he was a, a pirate. Uh, but the next one that we're going to read, Tower of the Elephant, which I have read before, it is set before he becomes king. It's during a period of his life where he was a thief. And so it's kind of fun to think about it that way, that. You get this first story about Conan, and then you get the second story about Conan, which is a little later in his life. And then the third story, we're getting like a prequel type of thing. So, yeah, that's what we'll be looking at next time in episode four, Tower of the Elephant. Um, 
as of the time I'm recording this, it's been adapted three times in comic book form. The first time was by Marvel Comics in Conan the Barbarian number four from January of 1971. And then again by Marvel Comics in Savage Sword of Conan number 24 in September of 1977. And I don't, I'm fairly certain that's just not a reprint. I know that Frost Giant's daughter, they put in like one of the first, I don't know, maybe not one of the first, but it's, it's in Conan the Barbarian, the main title for Marvel Comics. And then they reprinted it in Savage Sword of Conan, or they originally printed it in Savage Sword of Conan and reprinted it for, I don't remember, but it's the same story, same art, same everything. Uh, in this case, I think it's a completely different, uh, written by Roy Thomas, who also wrote for wrote the first adaptation for Conan the Barbarian, but it's a different artist. So that'll be kind of neat to see how Marvel Comics, Roy Thomas in particular, adapts this story in 1971, and then how he adapts it again in 1977. It's kind of weird. Uh, but then the third adaptation is from Dark Horse. It's their, from their main Conan title. Issues 20 through 22, which were uh, from September to November of 2005. So that's your homework, folks. You can find all that stuff. Go out and read it. I have found that so far, all of these Robert E. Howard stories are online for you to read for free. Um, while I've been reading or while I've been listening to an audiobook, I uh, went to Project Gutenberg, and this is the Australian version, so gutenberg.net.au has the Scarlet Citadel there to read for free. And then uh, I don't remember what wiki something or other that had Phoenix on the sword, but you got at least two weeks from the day this episode posts if you want to try to get any of those versions of those stories read before we get to episode four. I think you can do it. Until then, folks, my name is Steven, and this has been Hither Came Conan. Bye. Hither Came Conan is a Stephen or Else production. Find more podcasts at stephenorelse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to stephenorelse at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or Else. And join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Many wars and feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.